This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. And as you're turning there, uh, I was walking around this morning meeting people. I met four uh, visitors this morning, first-time visitors. I know God is bringing us a lot these days. So I just want to encourage you, if you would, to give us some information about yourself. You can reach right in front of you and take that card and fill that out. We would love to know that you're here. And members and visitors, please continue to know we love to know how to pray for you. Uh, in this building, tomorrow morning, 8.30, all of your pastors, staff will gather together. We will pray for these by name. We love to pray for you. Let us know how we can do it more, signif- uh, more specifically, and you can put those in the basket at the back. Well, this morning is our second sermon in a series of sermons titled Enemies of the Soul. Lord willing, in February, we will begin an extended series through the book of Hebrews that most likely will take us all of the rest of the year. That's our normal bread and butter is walking through books of the Bible. But this, this morning, we're going to continue talking about some things that I believe God uh, revealed to us last year that might be subtle, might be unseen or unnoticed, but they are in fact enemies of our soul. I told you last week, these are heavy sermons, and they are. This morning is no exception But the goal of these heavy sermons is that it might move us to deal with these heavy issues and then become lighter than we ever have before. That we might repent, that we might get whole and clean before the Lord, and as a result, we might walk in a newness of life. Last week, we looked at the issue of pride, and this morning, we look at the enemy of idolatry. The enemy of idolatry. Now, in Exodus 32, we have one of the more familiar stories in the Old Testament. Now, before we read some verses there, I want to give you a little context of what's going on. So God has just miraculously delivered his people after over 400 years from slavery in Egypt, where they were hated and oppressed and disdained and constantly persecuted. God supernaturally, in a way that only God can do, delivered them from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt. He then brought them to the Red Sea where they heard the footsteps of the Egyptian army coming behind them. God then separated the sea. They walked over on dry ground. And then once they got over, they turned around and saw the sea close in on uh, Pharaoh and all of his army. They then saw God, when they were thirsty, bring water out of a rock. When they were hungry, they say God sent manna from heaven. Every single moment of their journey out of Egypt was a moment in which they experienced the supernatural work of God. I don't know of any generation that saw more specific ways in which God supernaturally worked than this one. We read those things and we say, God, just give us a taste of that in our day. Let's just see a little bit of this in the church today. My goodness, they saw God work in supernatural ways. No way they could doubt that God was moving in their lives. And God's goal was to not only get them out of slavery, but to get them into the promised land. And that whole episode that we see there in the Old Testament is a picture of our salvation. God delivers us, he saves us, he pursues us, he rescues us. He brings us to himself where he teaches us in this life to trust and follow him so that he might ultimately take us to the promised land. 
And it was in that moment in which God brought them out that he brought them to Mount Sinai and began to show them what it means to have a relationship with him. And it really is like a marriage. This is the picture God wants us to have from this moment all the way till the end of Revelation where we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is an important way for us to think about our salvation. So God says, I pursued you, I came after you, and I rescued you, and I brought you to myself because I love you, and I'm passionate about you, I desire you, and I, I want you. And he says, now, I'm going to make a, a covenant with you. I'm going to promise to love you and protect you. I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to ask you to make it a covenant back to me, that you'll give yourself fully to me, that I'll be your God, and you'll be wholly committed to me. These were the marriage vows. That's what we have in the covenant. And then they make a covenant together. And then they celebrate together like a big wedding reception. And there it is. These are God's people. There was a moment after that in which Moses went up to the mountain to receive some words from the Lord. And here's what happens in Exodus 32 when Moses goes up. If you're there in Exodus 32, say amen. Listen to this. Starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and they drank and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses, who is the mediator at this moment between God and man, really a picture for us of Christ Jesus, implored the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but it goes on to tell us what happens is that Moses does go down as the Lord told him to. And as he begins to send from the mountain where he had just received the Ten Commandments and he holds them in his hand on stone tablets, he begins to hear the singing. 
He knows that the people are having some kind of celebration. There's the sound of joy. There's the sound of a party, and he hears it. He then goes down and sees exactly what is going on, exactly what the Lord told him. They're worshiping and celebrating and singing and playing as they worship this golden calf. Moses, in his anger, throws down the stone tablets. They break. Then Moses takes the golden calf, my favorite part of the story. He burns it. He grinds it up. He puts it in the water and makes them all drink it. And then he goes to Aaron and says, Aaron, what are you doing? Like, I left you in charge for like a few days, right? What happened? And Aaron says this, man, I, I don't know. You know these people. They're the worst. He says, I don't know what happened. I threw some gold into a fire and out came this golden calf. I'm not making this up. He says this, which it tells us previously, he fashioned the calf with an engraving tool and he's the one that made the proclamation that they were going to have a celebration and worship it. But Aaron goes, I don't know what happened. I threw the gold in, calf comes out. Everybody started worshiping. I'm just over here minding my business. Moses then says, all right, who's for me and who's against me? Who's with the Lord and who's not? There are 3,000 that are killed that day because they're not with the Lord. God then brings a plague upon the people to remind them of the seriousness of the sin of idolatry. I've been thinking about this story all week. And every time I read it, I think about the fact that in 2021, to us, everything about this story just seems foolish and foreign. It seems foolish because we know the story. And we think about how ridiculous it is for people having just been supernaturally brought out of Egypt across the Red Sea to then make a gold cow and then say to it, this is what brought us out of Egypt. And this is where we're going to find life. And this is the one who's going to save us and serve us and lead us into the promised land. Now, kids, I know we're not supposed to say this, but we look at these people and go, what a bunch of idiots. I mean, isn't it? It's, it's mind boggling how people can do something so dumb. It's a cow. You think, my goodness, they've just given everything to this after having watched God supernaturally lead them, seeing the manna and the water and everything happen. They then in a moment turn their back on the Lord and they begin to worship and play and sing to something that was just fashioned out of earrings. But not only is it foolish, it just seems foreign to us. I mean, we just don't see this that often. In our context, we don't see a lot of idol worship in this way. Before we moved here, we lived 11 years in Dallas, Texas, in an area which was the most diverse zip code in America. Almost 40% of our community was Asian Indians, almost all of them Hindus. So as a regular part of our ministry, we were often in the homes of these people. And uh, a few things always stuck out to me. You open the door and the smell of uh, incense was immediately upon you because they had been burning incense to their gods. And then you'd walk in and not being familiar with this, it was the strangest thing in the world to see on every mantle, on an every shelf, elephants with multiple horns and little weird deities with five arms and five legs and a bunch of eyes and horns and all of this stuff. And you look at that and you think, they worship this. Like they literally, they get on their knees and pray to these statues, believing that those statues are going to help them and give them life and hear them and answer prayers. And the reason it seems so foolish and foreign to us is because we believe that Psalm 115 is true, where it says this, their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. 
They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Just seems like such a foolish and foreign thing to worship something like this. And I would just imagine, this may not be 100% true, but I would just imagine none of you this week really fought the temptation to bow down to a golden cow. But the reality is, is that when we think of idolatry this way, we end up missing what is really idolatry. Because when we think about it in terms of worshiping a golden calf, then we begin to think of idolatry as only a moment in which we bend the knee, not the moment in which we bend the heart. We think of idolatry in terms of bending our knee and giving worship to a false idol, when in reality, the idolatry we struggle with in our contrast, in our context, is the idolatry of the soul. It is what it is that we are bowing down to in our souls. What is actually the Lord of our lives? What is it we love and serve and trust? Listen to me. The only difference between us and them is that our golden calf just looks a little bit more like status and children and wealth and health and sports and politics. Every single person in this room, myself included, struggles on a daily basis with idolatry. Because idolatry is simply anything in your life that's more important to you than God. An idol is anything in your life, anything that is more important to you than God. It is what you worship, not with your mind, but in reality, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, what is, what is it that you worship? If you worship anything other than God or anything is more important to you than God, that, in fact, is your God. And the truth is, you can't help but to worship. You have to understand this about yourself. God created you to worship. He put a desire in your heart to live for something and to love something and to be passionate about something. You know how in Exodus 32, they were singing and rejoicing and celebrating. We were created to do that. We were created to get excited about something. We were created to go all in with something. Do you know this? Listen, something this morning owns you. Something owns you. It may be your belief that nothing owns you. But something owns you. There is something that is controlling you. There is something that is consuming you. There is something that is calling the shots in your life. And whatever that is, is God. The truth is that we see this as such a foreign concept when in reality it is an everyday battle. The question is not, will you worship? The question is, who are you going to worship? Or what will you worship? Who owns you? Who controls you? What do you love? What do you trust? And listen, the question is not a mental one. Because if I were to say, raise your hands this morning, if, if you worship Jesus Christ, you're gonna say, I worship Jesus Christ. I love Jesus. He's the Lord of my life. The question is not a mental one. The question is a practical one. What actually functions as the Lord of your life? That's the issue. What is it that really does control you? What is it that consumes you? That is the Lord of your life. And the reason it matters so much 
is because if you worship anything other than God, then that is actually your God. And anything you worship other than God, listen to me, no matter how good it is and no matter how precious it seems to be, if you worship anything other than God, it's just a golden calf. It cannot satisfy, it cannot hear, it cannot help, it cannot see. And the God who loves you and longs for you to find fullness of life in him wants to deliver you from a soul that is bowing down to a golden calf. So this morning, I want us to look at two issues. First of all, how do we discern the idols of our heart? And second, how do we destroy them? How do we discern them? How do we know what they are? And then how do we cast them down and give ourselves fully to the Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, how do we discern idols? Well, I would say there may be nothing more difficult to discern than an idol of the soul. If someone were to come in this morning and during the music time, they were to sit on the end and then when we stand up to sing, they take a little rug out of a bag and they roll it out and then they take two or three statues out of a little bag and they set them down and right here in the middle of the aisle, they get down on their knees and while we're all singing and worshiping, they're doing this and bowing down to a little statue. I think we would look at them and say, they might have a problem. Like I think, I've, I've never really seen it. We would say that that looks like idolatry to me. The reality is, while we were singing, every one of you is doing that to something. And this week, every one of us did that to something. It's just because it's idolatry of the soul and it's not as much about bending the knee, it's just really hard to discern. It makes it difficult. It means we have to ask more questions and be a little bit more thoughtful and examine our souls. And that's what we're gonna try to do here in the next few minutes. You see... The way you know what it is you worship is worship is whatever has your mind, your will, and your emotions. Think about it that way. And these are important words for you to write down because a lot of this message is a call for you to reflect. You worship whatever has your mind, your will, and your affections. Meaning, what is it that has your thoughts? What controls your mind most of the time? What has your will? What determines the decisions you make? What has your confidence? What has your trust and what has your emotions, what it is that makes you happy and sad and angry and fired up and passionate, what is it that you're most passionate about? You see, whatever has your mind, your will, and emotions is what it is you're worshiping. Your worship is controlling those three areas. So let me just ask some questions. When your mind is at rest and you're not thinking about anything else, what is it that your mind is, is drawn to? What is that thing that you may lay in bed at night and you can't help but to continue to think about? It's always in your mind. It's always consuming you. What is it that you're thinking about the most? What do you get the most excited about? What makes you the happiest? What makes you the most passionate? What it is that riles you up the most? What consumes your time and your attention? What it is that consumes your affection? Listen, what are you sacrificially giving to? Now, I know we're in Oconee County. This doesn't apply to everyone. But the vast majority of people in this room are sacrificially spending on something. They're sacrificing for something. I mean, instead of doing this, they're having to make a decision. We're going to put our money into this. Almost everyone is sacrificing. They're making decisions about where their money is going to go. And what I find is people don't have a hard time sacrificially giving. They just have a hard time sacrificially giving to the church. 
but they're giving sacrificially. And Jesus tells us in Luke 12, he tells us over and over that if you want to find out where your heart really is, find out where your money is going because there's an, a, a direct connection between where your heart is and where your finances are going. Your soul will actually follow your finances. What are you sacrificially giving to? What is it you're making some sacrifices in order to make it happen? Think about this. What do you really want the most? Now, what is that one thing you think? If I just had that, I was gonna be okay. If I could just get that, Lord, that's the one thing I need, I would be satisfied. Or think about it this way. What is that one thing you can't imagine not having? The one thing that if God were to take this away, if God were to remove this, however good and precious it might be, if God were to remove this, God, I don't know if I could make it if God took that away. Those things are helping us discern the idols of the soul. What has your mind, your will, and your affections? Now, there are a couple of things we need to know about idols. The first one is that most times an idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. We're gonna talk about some specific idols in just a minute. No, they're good things. All of them are, are good things. But what happens over time is if we don't protect our souls, something that is good, that is actually a gift from God that God has given you to enjoy can become the ultimate thing. So that which is just to be a blessing of God becomes the thing that we exist for and live for. Second thing about idols is this, is that you cannot separate idols from your cultural context. You know why the people of Israel worshiped a golden calf? Because that's what they worshiped in Egypt and they were just there for over 400 years. So they were around that kind of worship and God took them out of Egypt, but the Egypt was still in their heart and their context determined what they worship. Which means this, is that if we wanna understand what we worship, we gotta think about where we are and where we live because people on the West Coast can worship different things than people on the East Coast. People up North can worship things different than they do in the South. People in Atlanta can worship different things than they do in Oconee County. These are cultural. And so part of my responsibility is to think about what it is that God is saying to us. What might be the most common ones for us? I started on Tuesday with a list of about 25. I got it down on Thursday to 12. Last night I had eight. This morning I have six. I think every one of them would have been good, but I knew you probably wanted to get out and have lunch at some point. So I've narrowed it down to what I believe and I sense may be the six most prominent idols in our cultural context. Let me give them to you because I want you to reflect on them and later write these down. The first idol I believe that is prevalent among us is the idol of a life. A certain kind of life. Maybe a life that you imagined from the time that you were young, the kind of marriage you were gonna have, the kind of spouse you were gonna have, the children you were gonna have, the job that you were gonna have, the house you were gonna live in, the car that you were going to drive. It doesn't take long for us to have this idea of a life that we want and everything is consumed with having that life. It might be something you created yourself. It might be something that was posed upon you. What do I mean? Well, we often want a life we don't have when we see the life that someone else has. Have you ever loved your house and been to someone else's house and then came back home and realized you hate your house? You ever had that happen? You ever loved your car and you're riding somebody else's car and then get back in your car and think, I hate my car, I need another car. Have you ever watched HGTV and just think, my I, I, I hate my house, it's terrible. I need the Joanna Gaines touch on my house. You ever had those thoughts? 
I think the rise of like Hallmark movies has given us a picture of our life and the rise of HGTV and all of these things has created this picture of the kind of house you're supposed to have and the kind of life you're supposed to have. And all of a sudden we find that the desire to get that and to live that way and to appear that way can be what drives so much of the decisions that we make and the money that we spend. Andrew and I got a couple of just little new things for our house this weekend and we stood back and looked at it and we actually had this conversation. We thought, can you imagine the freedom that would come if you never had the thought, I don't care if anyone else likes this or think it looks good, we like it. Isn't that amazing? But I don't know what it is that we think, well, well everybody's gotta like this, it's gotta look good, it's gotta match, it's gotta fit. And the reality is, is that we can get consumed with this vision of a life that we wanted to have and it can change everything about our lives because we just got this idol, this, this life, this spouse, children, everything the way it was supposed to be. And if you don't get it, it's just crushing. I think another idol, very prominent in our moment, is the idol of children. These are good things that can become ultimate things. I think a lot about how in previous generations, I don't think they read a lot of parenting books. The Puritans were good about studying the Bible and really believed. You know, I, one of my, I hate when someone says, you know, these kids don't come with a manual. Yes, they do. It's right here. Everything you need for life and godliness is right here. You want to get a good parenting manual, just read Proverbs. But man, they, we live in a generation that's consumed with their kids. Their kids are the center of life. They're making their decisions based upon their kids. They're consumed, and I think a lot of this goes back to the first one, because they need their kids to be a certain way or do certain things, and a lot of that goes back to maybe an insecurity of a parent or desire to have a kind of life that they just invest everything into their kids. The kids are the center of the universe. One of the things I see the most his parents saying to me, well, you know, we visit a bunch of churches. We like yours better, but our kids like another one better because they have an indoor slide. Let me just ask you a question. When does a kid know how to pick a church? Now, you may need to go to the church that has an indoor slide. Praise God. That may be exactly where God wants you. We're not any better. I'm just saying this. Your kids shouldn't pick your church. They don't have a clue. That's why they got parents to make those decisions for them that they are completely unable to make. And man, we live this life with the sports and the activities and the money and all we're investing in our children. We are consumed with them and someday they're gonna leave and you're gonna have nothing. I think we're also consumed with this desire that we might have something in an appearance to someone else that's not even the reality, just desperate and desperate to get people to think that we're something that we may not be. I think another one is that of wealth. We're just driven by wealth. If I just had a little bit more, I could do this. You know, I, I told some people the other day, a bunch of guys were talking and we all agreed that if you were to tell us when we were like 15 that we'd make what we'd make today, we think we'd all be like retired and living in mansions and we'd be great. And the reason it doesn't work that way is because no matter how much you make, you always think you need to make a little bit more. I heard Tim Keller say something profound, a pastor in New York City. He says, you know, everybody talks about Molech. You know, Molech in the Old Testament, this is a group of people that in order to appease their gods, sacrificed their children. They literally laid their children on an altar and killed them and burned them in order to make their God happy. And he says, we look at that and we think, how barbaric. I mean, what a terrible thing to sacrifice your child to this God. And he said, but I see it all the time. 
If you're gonna thrive, he said, in New York City, in the finance industry, then you have to take your child and sacrifice it on the altar of wealth or you will not make it. Child sacrifice is very much alive. When parents sacrifice the good and spiritual direction and health and well-being of their children, just an attempt to get a little more and it will never be enough. It's an idol of wealth. I believe one that's big for us is an idol of, of health, of health. We're just consumed with our bodies and how we look and how we take care of our bodies and what we eat. Another thing a previous generation just didn't think as much about. We're spending tons of money thinking about these things. Did you, did you see, I don't want to get off track here, but you, one of those idiots uh, dressed like a Viking that, that stormed into the Capitol building. You see how he's on a hunger strike because they won't give him organic food in prison? My God, that's pitiful. His mama actually wrote a letter and appealed to the state saying that he gets sick if he eating organic food. I used to eat organic food until our organic uh, eating family and wife got cancer at 34 and then I realized I'm not gonna exercise or eat organic food. It just doesn't seem to matter anymore. And we are consumed with this. It's taking care of this. It's body, it's flesh. Like we just gotta hold on to this. It is, like, it is like we're terrified of the very thing that Jesus died to take the fear of away from us, and that is death. Health is an idol. Now, I've got two more. Let me get a little more personal. I, uh, somebody told me in the first service that they sent my sermon notes to somebody out of town last week, and they simply responded, tell your pastor to mind his own business. Sports. You know, we have these D groups here and, and they're supposed to read a chapter or two of the Bible every day and memorize a verse. And one of the things we hear the most from our men's D groups, we don't hear from the women, the men whine more, but we hear it from the men's groups. They say, Pastor, we just can't memorize a verse. It's just hard for us. We just can't memorize a verse. I guarantee you, you can ask them sports statistics on rushing yards from three years ago and they can give it to you. They just can't memorize a verse. That's weird. I don't know how that happens. It's just because it's some other part of your brain that memorizes Bible verses. You know, I'm always nervous. I have this internal clock. I've been preaching so long that at about 32, 35 minutes, I know. I know when I've hit there. And I'm always nervous when I go a little bit longer, which I'm going to do today. I start feeling that and I start feeling like you're going to get antsy and those type of things. And then I realize that you love an overtime ball game. Nobody ever says, free preaching. Nobody ever says that. He just went over 35. We're getting free preaching. But we love free baseball. We love free basketball and free football. David Platt fleshed this out to great detail one time. I'm going to tell you briefly. He said, just imagine someone from another country came and followed people around and he wanted to know what they worshiped. And he went and followed a family and saw him on Sunday morning where the mom had to drag the kids out of bed. They all had a bad attitude. They got in the car. They came to this place where there was some kind of ritual. And uh, they were just kind of doing this while the singing was going on and not really engaged. And uh, then some guy got up and talked. And uh, they listened for a little bit. They got really fidgety. And uh, you could just tell they didn't really want to be there. And then at the end, they just ran out. And uh, nobody talked about what happened. They just kind of went out. And he said, then Saturday comes. 
And they see people jump up and they're so excited and they get, they get dressed in these different clothes. And, and then they go to another sanctuary where they're so expressive and excited and they lift their voices and they lift their hands and you can just tell this is a big deal to them. And then they talk about it before and they talk about it during and they talk about it after and they talk about it the next day. You say, who would they think is God? Well, there's truth to that, isn't it? And whether it be with what we're passionate about, our kids getting, our own consumption. Remember, these are good things. I'm looking forward to watching two games today. I understand that. God has given these as good gifts. But those gifts can be ultimate in our lives. When you realize your time and energy and affection is going much more to sports than it is to Jesus Christ, you are headed in a dangerous and disappointing direction. Maybe the last one. It's politics. No, I'm serious. I want you to just think about this for a minute. If your God is what has your mind and your will and your affection, how many people could it be this morning that their minds are filled with politics, their emotions are consumed with politics, that their confidence is in politics? I've never seen more angst and anger and disappointment and hyperbole. And what I mean by that is people saying to me, Pastor, if this doesn't happen, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going to happen. Pastor, if this doesn't happen, if we don't get this, if this, oh, you can't imagine, Pastor, this is the end. I mean, this is the end of America as we know it. Let me, let me tell you something. At the moment in which nobody remembers the name United States of America, the Church of Jesus Christ will still be standing. It's a blip like the Roman Empire. It is a blip in the perspective. And we need to seek the welfare of the place God put us. I preached on that in November. We get engaged, we vote, we do seek the welfare. But you are in a dangerous position if you are just so worked up about all of this when you don't have the same affection, your mind is not full of the same things when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. There may not be anyone bigger at this moment than that one. Truth is, whatever it is, whether it's one of those six or any others, whatever it is, it's got your mind. What's got your heart? What's controlling your heart? What do you love the most? What's got your attention? Well, that's God. So the question is, how do we get rid of it? How do we take down those idols for the glory of God? Well, I think it's good to, to take a little lesson from Exodus 32 when Moses burns him and grinds him and makes him drink it. I've always wondered why that's in there. I love that part, but I've always wondered why it's there. And I think it's to remind us of the disgusting nature of idolatry to God. To remind us that it's so serious that grinding it up and crushing it and drinking it is not an overreach on how we should deal with these things. The last verse of 1 John tells us to keep yourself from idols. These things which are good things that have just slowly crept in and become ultimate are dangerous to our spiritual lives. They're destroying our souls. And there are some in this room who know the things about the Lord Jesus Christ, but Jesus has really never been ultimate to you. He's never been the Lord of your life. There's something else. And until you get that thing off and replace it with Jesus Christ, you do not have any hope of eternity in heaven. This is serious business. And I really believe that all idolatry is rooted in one primary sin. You just gotta boil it down. Where does this come from? Listen, it is the sin of unbelief. Idolatry is rooted in the sin of unbelief. The truth is, is that God who wants us to deliver us from this has given us a way to take care of this. 
You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, which was pictured for us in the story of the people of God being delivered and saved and led to the promised land, is the gospel that we preach with more clarity because we have the New Testament. But here it is. It's that God created you, he loves you, and he's passionately affectionate for you. Church, look at me. There is no possible way you could comprehend the depth of love that God has for you. He loves you, thinks about you. He wants what is best. But yet we have rejected him and we rebel against him. And the result is because we were mated to worship and we have to worship something. Something has to own us. Since we've rejected God, we find something else. We put an idol on the throne of our hearts because something is there and something has to be there. God created us to be consumed with something, to eat and sing and party and rejoice over something. So we find something else and God in hopes to deliver us from that, knowing that those things can't save you or give you life, sends his son, Jesus Christ who came and lived the life that God required we lived and he died and he rose from the dead specifically so that we might kill the idols of our heart and replace it with the one who has life and the way who has the one who has meaning and the one who can make something significant from our lives. Jesus Christ died to free us from that and give us himself. And here's the thing about idols. Listen, idolatry is exhausting because you're constantly trying to please the idol of your heart. Get more money, make your kids better, live for this, do this, it's exhausting. When Jesus says this, come to me and I'll give you rest. Rest from what? Because the only thing God requires is you trust what Jesus has already done. You don't have to run on this treadmill of pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I've done it. You just gotta trust in me. But the reason idolatry is unbelief is because idolatry says this. Jesus, we just don't trust you. We don't trust that you have everything that we need. We don't, we don't trust that you're sufficient. It is unbelief and not believing that Jesus is sufficient for you. That everything you need and all your heart longs for found in Jesus. If you're rejecting Jesus to find significance in someone else, you just don't believe Jesus is enough. And it's the unbelief to believe that Jesus isn't better. If we believed that Jesus was better than anything else, and if he was sufficient to take over every need of our life, and that Jesus was trustworthy, we would give ourselves fully and completely to him. I want you to think about this way as we close. The best way for us to understand what God wants to do in our heart is understanding God's heart for us. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, why is it that the Lord would make that the first commandment? Listen carefully. Because there's nothing more painful in the life of a parent than seeing a child head in a direction that you know is going to hurt them. There is nothing more painful than seeing a spouse run in a direction that you know is going to hurt them. There is nothing more heartbreaking than seeing someone you love run in a direction that you know is just going to disappoint. So the God who loves you passionately does not want to see you head in that direction. He's saying, I'm desperate for you, for your good. This is for your good. This is for your good. This is for your good. If you really want to find life, come to me. Everything you're looking for is in me. The God who loves you and is passionate for you is saying, I am the way. Come to me. And he's simply asking you to take that idol off of the throne of your heart and put Jesus there and say, Jesus, I believe that you're enough. I believe that you're better. I believe that you're sufficient. I trust you with my life. And I ask you to come and be the Lord of my life. I want you 
you to be what I'm consumed with. Some of you for the very first time need to do that this morning. For the very first time, you need to realize that mentally you know the truth, but Jesus has never been Lord. That he has not been the all-consuming desire of your heart. And you need to the very first time this morning, call upon the name of the Lord and say, Lord, save me from idolatry. I don't wanna live this kind of life. Come be the Lord of my life. Some of you have know the Lord, have just seen as these good things have crept into your heart and become ultimate things. God, by his grace, is revealing that to you this morning so you can cast him down and begin right now again, making the Lord the Lord of your life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.